Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, senior pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. And we welcome all of you to our Sunday morning Bible study. Those who are joining us here in the gymnasium, those in the greater St. Louis area listening on KFUO 850 AM, and those literally worldwide on KFUO.org. For those who, uh, who are here in our gymnasium, we do have Bibles over on the cart. Uh, there is no handout. We're simply going to look at the Bible, beginning with Luke 3, and uh, pick up right where Pastor Wade left off last week. Uh, before that, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for choosing us in Christ, even before the foundation of the world, to be your children. We thank you then for sending your only begotten Son to suffer and die in our place on the cross so that our sin might be covered by his blood and we might be eternal heirs of everlasting life in your presence. We thank you for your word also. We pray your Holy Spirit's presence and guidance and blessing upon our study today as we continue looking at the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist and also your own son, Jesus Christ. We pray you bless us through that study. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. As I mentioned, we'll pick up where Pastor Wade left off last week, and that's in Luke chapter 3. He just barely got started, as I heard uh, last week. I, I listened to it myself. And uh, so we're going to start at 3 verse 1. We'll kind of get a running start and, uh, and head on in. Uh, talk a little bit about some of these people who are named here uh, and about their backgrounds. A couple of them a little interesting, at least. So again, Luke 3, verse 1, and I'll read the first three verses, and then we'll talk a little bit more about, uh, especially about some of these people uh, who are mentioned here. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So I guess the first thing we want to notice is notice how Luke sets these events, just as he did with the birth of Christ, he sets what is going to happen in historical context. Remember, uh, was Luke there when all these things happened? No. He is research. He has researched all things, remember, and is presenting it to Theophilus. Remember, we talked about that in the introduction. It's in the introduction of Luke. It's in, in the introduction uh, to the book of Acts, both of which he wrote. So he was not there, but he has researched all things. And it's kind of significant, I think, that he places always these events in historical context. It reminds the reader that this is not just some fairy tale that, you know, we're telling here, spinning a nice story. No, these, this is an actual historical event. Here's who was in power when this happened, both governmentally and even in the church. Okay? And so Luke is always meticulous to do this. And this is one of the things we really appreciate about Luke. Uh, he, he places things here. Uh, he alone, amongst the gospel writers, will be so meticulous to do this. And we're grateful for that uh, as a result. All right, let's take a look at some of these guys, some of these uh, names that are mentioned here. He starts at the top, <laughs> at least uh, governmentally. He starts with Caesar, right? And he says that this is in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, this is not the same Caesar that was in power when Christ was born. This is going to be a successor now. This is Tiberius Caesar. He had a three-year, you might say, co-ruling with Caesar Augustus, which was the one that, that uh, was the, the emperor when Christ was born. Um, from 11 to 14, they kind of co-ruled, and then Augustus died. Starting at 14 or 15, then, is when this 15-year reign began. We normally think they're not including that co-reigning. So 15th year, we're at about 28, 29 or so A.D. Remember we talked about, uh, you have already covered, I think Pastor Wade covered that, the mixing up of the calendar dates. Uh, you did that a couple weeks ago, I think, uh, with him. 
Uh, so around 28, 29 A.D. or so, when he's the emperor, now we come down again, still within the Roman government at the local level, Pontius Pilate. He was the governor of Judea. Judea is the territory that uh, Jerusalem, for example, would be in, uh, sort of the southern uh, area. And uh, Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor from 26 to 36 A.D. And remember, he is going to have the um, infamous distinction of being the one who finally is going to sentence Christ to be crucified, and very reluctantly at that. I mean, you can just see when, when Jesus comes before Pilate, Pilate is uh, very, very reluctant, actually wants to release him. When, and remember, he finds out that Herod is in town, the Herod who is the, the ruler of Galilee, and finds out Jesus is Galilean. Well, let's send him off to Herod, and thinking maybe I can get rid of get this off my plate. And then Herod sends him back, unfortunately. Remember, Pilate is the one who says, I find no guilt in him. Pilate is the one who washes his hands before, you know, after he has, has sentenced him, as if to say, I want nothing to do with this. This is not... This is not just, this is not fair. He's the one who, um, you know, offers to release Barabbas, or offers Barabbas to be crucified, I should say, rather, and release Christ. No, the people don't want that. They want Jesus crucified. And so, you know, Pilate is the one ruling at this time, and this is just sort of a a mention here, sort of a precursor of things to come. Uh, Pilate also, uh, ironically, when you think about it, is the only Roman official uh, whose name is mentioned every Sunday in our worship services as we confess the creeds, both the apostles and the Nicene, crucified under Pontius Pilate, right? And so uh, he goes down in history as a very interesting man, very uh, complex situation that he found himself in the midst of. Anyway, from 26 to 36, he ruled. Now, here's where it really gets interesting. Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee. Now, Galilee, again would be the area north. This is, uh, Judea is down south, and that's where Jerusalem, as I said, and others are. Galilee is up north, and actually Galilee is where Jesus did the vast majority uh, of his ministry, uh, especially Capernaum and the area around the Sea of Galilee and so on. So this Herod now is the ruler of Tetrarch of Galilee. Tetrarch is sort of a little bit below governor. Uh, actually, when, when the original Herod the Great died, they divided up the kingdom into fours and called the leaders tetrarchs. Now, I wish I had a projector here or something uh, as we name the family tree of the Herods. Just try to follow this uh, for a moment. He is the son, this Herod, the tetrarch of Galilee, is the son of Herod the Great. Okay? And Herodias, his wife, is the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Let that sink in for a minute. (laughs) And Philip, to whom Herodias was married, is also a son of Herod the Great by a different mother. Okay? Herodias was first married to Philip, her uncle, and then, without, we think, any divorce whatsoever, uh, then became married, and we don't know all the details, uh, to this Herod, who is Herod Antipas. So she went from being married to her one uncle, Philip, to be married to her other uncle, Herod, uh, yeah, uh, uh, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, Herod Antipas, in this case. So you think about that family tree. Can you imagine that today? And the gospel lesson for today, if you have been in worship already, is the account of how Herodias uh, manipulated things in order to have John the Baptist literally beheaded and his head brought to her on a platter. What a sweet, loving person, right? And this is all because John the Baptist had the audacity to speak up about the impropriety of this marriage. And she held a grudge against him, as the gospel lesson for today indicates. And so this uh, Herod Antipas has a big party. He's got, for his birthday, he has all of his officials and all the bigwigs there. And he has the daughter of Herodias come out and dance. 
and um, is, let's just say, is so impressed with the dancing that says, whatever you want, just name it, and I will give it to you, including even up to half of the kingdom, just name it, and I'll give it to you. So this daughter doesn't know what to ask for, goes to Herodias, mom, and says, what should I ask for? And she says, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And uh, Herod Antipas has already taken literally a public oath to, you know, to, to grant whatever the request is. And you can tell again, reluctantly goes through with that. And John the Baptist is beheaded and his head is brought to her on a platter. What a sweet, compassionate uh, family this is, isn't it? And it goes all the way, I, I, I've talked before about Herod the Great and how he uh, killed two of his sons and his wife. And so this kind of runs in the family tree. And remember that his, uh, the wife that he killed was supposedly so beautiful that uh, he uh, had her preserved in a vat of honey for I don't know how many years so that he could just go and look at her. She was supposedly so beautiful. So uh, let's just say the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree, right? This family was, uh, this would uh, be a great, uh, what do you call it, mini-series, documentary. Uh, you know, just this, probably, actually, I'm not kind of half-joking here. This would be quite a series to have if somebody would dig into it and actually uh, uh, do it. Now, having said all that, uh, he ruled in Galilee from 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. Uh, Philip, we already mentioned, he's the tetrarch of uh, Iturea and Trachonitis. And uh, that's an area that is north and east uh, of uh, Galilee. And then this guy Lysanias, we don't know a lot about. In fact, there are even more than one named Lysanias. Uh, the one that we think he's talking about uh, is, is an area, this Abilene is an area northwest of Damascus. And a lot of scholars have wondered, why does he even name this guy uh, Lysanias? If it's true that Luke was a Gentile from Syria, Abilene is right next to Syria. And perhaps that's why he bothers to even name this guy. I mean, we've already got enough here uh, without, without having to name him, but, but he does. But I'm just saying it's kind of fuzzy. We don't know as much uh, about this guy uh, as we do the others. Now, we've covered the political guys. Now, notice how he also here puts it in the context of the religious leaders of the day. And when he says, during the high priesthood, of Annas and Caiaphas, okay? Uh, Annas, uh, Caiaphas was Annas's son-in-law, okay? And the high priesthood sometimes did go down family lines, and it, there was a lot of sort of under-the-table financial uh, dealings that, that went along as well. Um, now, Annas was the high priest from 6 A.D. to 15 A.D. So he was the high priest when Jesus is born, but he's no longer in office, officially in office anymore. Caiaphas is the one who's in office. He was high priest from 18 to 36 A.D. So he's going to be the high priest um, who is going to convene the uh, uh, Sanhedrin right after Jesus is arrested on Monday, Thursday evening. He's going to be the high priest who's going to be interrogating Jesus. Uh, he's going to be the high priest who is going to, uh, in effect, sentence Jesus, although they couldn't execute anyone. So he's the guy that is officially in. But notice how Luke puts it. During, uh, when, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, it seems like, most historians agree, that Annas, although he was done being the high priest in office, in 15 AD, still had a lot of influence. Um, I've likened him to the godfather, you know, who, who uh, everybody, he's, he may not be the official godfather anymore, but he's got a lot of sway. He's got a lot of influence. In fact, when they arrest Jesus on Monday, Thursday evening, instead of bringing him to Caiaphas first, who do they take him to? Annas. That tells you something right there. And in the meantime, behind the scenes, Caiaphas is organizing the Sanhedrin for that illegal meeting on Monday, Thursday evening, when they already decide they're going to they're execute Jesus. 
It's just an, an illegal meeting because it took place at night and they have to convene very early the next morning just to make it legal. So Luke is setting here for us the scene. Here, here's who was in power when this is about to happen now. And we are on the precipice now. We are on the brink of the whole ministry, public ministry of salvation beginning. In Luke, we've already had the annunciations of both John the Baptist and Jesus. We've had the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. There's uh, a Pastor Wade covered with you last week uh, when Jesus was left in the temple when he was 12 years old. And uh, there are a lot of jokes you can make about that. But anyway, there's this 18-year, what we call 18-year silent period that exists here where we don't know much of anything in terms of details of Jesus' life. We assume that he worked with his father Joseph as, you know, in a, carp as a carpentry, in a carpentry trade. Uh, it's interesting that uh, last week Jesus is even called the carpenter. Remember when they try to discredit him? Is this not the carpenter? And so that's about literally all we know about him. After, uh, from the time he's left in the temple at 12 until now he comes to begin his public ministry. John the Baptist being his forerunner. This, again, we think Jesus is a, about 30 years of age at this time. And if he's, let's just say he's 30 right on the nose. How old would John the Baptist be? 30 and six months, right, right. Six months ahead uh, of Jesus when the angels came and made their, made their proclamation. Okay? So, when this all happens, uh, we go on here. The word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And notice here, John, uh, rather Luke, is very good. When he says the son of Zechariah, he's connecting us. He's, he's helping us remember that this is all connected to what happened before and what Zechariah prophesied and what, what uh, uh, Elizabeth prophesied. This is all connected now because this is the guy, this is the son of Zechariah that we've been, that we've been reading about and you've heard about, okay? Um, John the Baptist, it seems, has been living out in the wilderness from his youth. Uh, if you can keep your finger here, those of you are, uh, that have a, a paper Bible, those of you who have your phone, uh, if you could just scroll back, or look back, turn back, to Luke 1, verse 80. And I don't know, I can't explain uh, how logistically he was living in the wilderness, but Luke 1, verse 80 where Luke here summarizes, and the child, he's talking about John the Baptist here, grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Until what we're going to study right now. And remember, there are the, the other descriptions about him eating locusts and wild honey and clothed in camel's hair and so on. Um, I, we wish we had more details here. You know, does, what about Zechariah and Elizabeth? Did they just let him go out in the wilderness and, and live as a youth? Are they out there? Is he just making sporadic trips out there? You know, I know as parents, sometimes there may be times when you want your children to go out in the wilderness for a while, but uh, you know, he, it kind of sounds like he's living out there. And you know, how is that? I, I don't know. If any of you have been to uh, uh, Israel, you know that that wilderness is pretty desolate wilderness. Uh, there's not a lot out there. Uh, the, the Holy Land is very interesting, very lush and green up in the north, and the further south you go, uh, the more and more arid it becomes, and right outside of Jerusalem, you can just go over uh, the Mount of Olives and over that area, and you can be in the wilderness, which is, you know, brush and sand and, and just very desolate place. And so he's living out there, okay? Now, what about the significance of the wilderness? Anybody think of any other time that the wilderness was significant in any story about, about God's people? The Exodus, right? Where, where are they after they are in the Exodus? They are in the wilderness, right? And with Moses as their leader, and God is preparing them for entrance into the promised land, and then they send the spies to look at the land, and remember all but two come back and say, oh, the people are so big. I don't think we better try this. And remember, it's only Joshua and Caleb who come back and give a good report. And for that, for that unbelief, 
they are consigned to be out in the wilderness for 40 years. And uh, God is, in effect, shaping them uh, for um, the, the promise, being his people in the promised land. They're eventually going to come across into the promised land, out in the wilderness, across the Jordan River. Where is John the Baptist? Burning people into the promised land, baptizing them out in the Jordan River. A new beginning for God's people many, many, many years previously, and a new beginning for God's people even in our text, as we'll see. Okay, So that has significance. Also, right after he is baptized, Jesus goes is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. Okay? And we could look at other instances where the wilderness with Elijah and so on. It, it seems throughout the scriptures, that the, ironically I guess, that the wilderness is the place where spiritual significant things happen. And the cities are the places where there is corruption and uh, not so good things spiritually happening. Kind of interesting. I, I don't know, I, I don't know why. But when you read through the scriptures, you just see that God seems to be at work in the wilderness, not so much in the, in the uh, hubbub of everyday life. If I were preaching on this, this might be a, a leap, but isn't it often in the times of wilderness in our lives that God does some of his most significant work? When things are kind of dry and arid in our lives, that God is at work in our lives and accomplishes some of his greatest work. Maybe so. Okay? Now, um, let's go to uh, going on here. Uh, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. This is the first time that we see the word preaching or proclaiming in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to see it a bunch of other times. And just to let you know, this whole idea of repentance is a major theme in Luke. He uses it 14 times throughout his gospel. So when you see repentance, know that this is a major emphasis of Luke. Now, we've got to talk a minute about this baptism of repentance. What was this baptism that John the Baptist was both proclaiming, preaching but also administering out there in the Jordan. First thing we have to say is that it is not the equivalent of what we might call the Great Commission baptism. In other words, it is not a baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As Jesus commanded his disciples uh, in Matthew chapter 28 when he gave them the Great Commission. It is simply a baptism of repentance and notice that there is no indication here whatsoever of any outpouring of the Holy Spirit here connected with his baptism, as there is, for example, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. We think of this baptism, then, in a different way. It might be called, for example, a baptism of preparation that called on you as a person, specifically if you were a Jew, to turn away. The, the literal Greek word here, metanoia, means a changing of your mind, a turning of your mind. But it really meant a lot more than just changing your mind. It was also a change of heart. That, that you were, as a Jew now, turning away. You were changing your mind and turning away from saying, well, I have Abraham as my father. I don't need to worry about a thing. Right? I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm good. Or turning away from, relying on your own um, good life, your own keeping of the law, so to speak, as a means of saying, I'm all right with God. And so John here is saying, no, that is not the way. Turn away from those things, you know. And there is a new age dawning here for you right now. Okay? And so, no longer, uh, you know, he, he's going to point away from those things and point to 
the way to salvation, the one who is going to be coming now, the one whose sandals he is not worthy to stoop down and untie, that's the one you look for. Turn away from all these other things and turn toward him. So this baptism that he was doing was a baptism of preparation, a baptism of leaving behind what you were. And by the way, this is not just Jews. As we'll see here in a moment, Luke tells us that the tax collectors are even coming out there and soldiers are coming out there. Now, granted, the soldiers could have been temple guard and maybe were Jews, but they also could have been Roman soldiers. We just don't know. But turn away from your old way of life and begin a new way of life. And as we're going to see, this turning away is not just in your head and in your heart, but it's the way you live your life as well. Turn around. So he's out there preparing the way because Christ is coming. The kingdom of God is at hand right here and now. So, as Lutherans, does repentance still play a role in our lives today? I mean, we're Christians, right? Do we need to repent at all? Yeah. On a daily basis, right? On a daily basis, we uh, turn away from what we may have done, said, or thought, and we ask for God's forgiveness by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, typically, uh, and this is, I think, a real good emphasis of Lutheran theology, is that we think, I think when most people think of repentance, they only think about the first part of repentance, and that's the sorrow or the contrition, we call it, that we feel in our heart, right? I said something yesterday to somebody I shouldn't have said, I feel so bad about that. I have this contrition in my heart, right? Or I didn't do something I should have done to help, you know, my dad or something like that. And boy, I feel bad about that. I should have really gone and done that, you know? So there, there is that. There is that contrition that we feel for something that we either have done or failed to do. But as Lutherans, the other thing we emphasize is that true repentance also involves faith in the forgiveness for that sin and every other sin by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So there's really two parts to repentance, and I'm going to add a third here in a moment, but it's not just contrition. Uh, the disciple Judas, did he feel contrition after he betrayed Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. Try to return the money, and they went the 30 pieces of silver, they wouldn't take it back, ends up going out and hanging himself, right? Disciple Peter, in the garden right after Jesus is arrested, denies knowing Jesus three times in, in, in the strongest possible terms. So he is sorrowful for that, he weeps. But then he later is restored by Jesus and has faith that, that even those that sin is forgiven, right? So it's... It's not just the contrition and sorrow over our sin. It's also that faith that those sins are forgiven, completely wiped away as far as the East is from the West. And by the way, is the amount of sin forgiven in us dependent upon just how sorrowful we are? I mean, if, if we really beat ourselves up well enough, does that make it better with God? No, some of you are laughing. Uh, in fact, though, uh, sad to say, uh, Luther thought that in his early years. And that's why he would beat himself, he would spend nights out in the cold, he would stay up all night praying, he would punish himself thinking that by doing that, God was going to somehow be more satisfied with him. So this repentance is not, if you think about it, if that were the case, then your forgiveness would only be partially through Christ and partially through how much you beat yourself up over that sin, right? And that's not the case. So the, the level of the intensity of our, uh, of our contrition is not uh, on a gauge on how much uh, we're going to be forgiven. Now, the, I said I wanted to add a third part, and that is we would expect that there would be a desire on the part of the person who confesses their sin and receives forgiveness of sin to amend their sinful life right? That they would at least have the desire to not keep repeating that same sin over and over and over again, right? 
And um, let me read from you, uh, for you rather, from our Lutheran confessions. This is from the Augsburg Confession. Now, properly speaking, true repentance is nothing else than to have contrition and sorrow, so there's part one, or terror about sin, and at the same time to believe in the gospel and absolution that sin is forgiven and grace is obtained through Christ. Such faith, in turn, comforts the heart and puts it at peace. Then, here comes the third one, improvement should also follow. The person should refrain from sins, for these should be the fruits of repentance. As John says, John the Baptist says in Matthew 3, verse 8, bear fruit worthy of repentance. So those three things, contrition for sin, faith in the fact that through Christ, those sins are forgiven. So stop beating yourself up over them. They are completely wiped away. And third, we expect some improvement in life. Some, uh, at least desire, expressed desire to amend my sinful life. For those of you in the sanctuary today, uh, we're unfortunately, well, I was say unfortunately, we're, we're doing the order of matters. So we don't have the confession and absolution of sins. But the next time, and we will be in Livingstone, for those of you who are here in Livingstone, but the next time we do the confession and absolution, I'd ask you to take special attention to the last part of what comes out of our mouth when we're confessing our sins. It goes like this. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may, what? Delight in your will. Not just say, oh, well, okay, I guess I'll try. But actually delight in your will, Lord. That I delight in what you want me to do and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. There's the last part of that confession that says, Lord, we desire to amend our sinful way. Help us to do that, Lord. We want to get there. And, and that's what we want to do. And so, you know, we, we point that out to people uh, who come, especially uh, those who come for private or individual confession and absolution, that, you know, let's, let's try, what can we do to, you know, maybe prevent this from happening in the future? You know, and you're putting yourself in a place where, you're going to be susceptible to this sin in the future. Um, now, I want to make one caveat here, and that is uh, in the area of addictions. I think that there can, at the same time, be a strong desire on the part of a person to amend their sinful life, and it can be very hard when it comes to physical addictions to things. Okay? And there we would try to seek out, again, either some program or some other physical, logistical changes in their life help bring that about. So that, that's a very, that's a very uh, I guess, unique way or unique part of us. This last week, I was listening to KFUO, and I can't remember the pastor's name, <clears throat> and somehow they got onto talking about uh, confession and absolution, and I've never had a person say this to me, but he said, this pastor said, he confronted this member of his, uh, a gentleman, about just about something that was a repeated sin and was not pleasing in the sight of God. And the pastor said to him, it does not appear that you have any desire to change your sinful life. And you know what the guy's response was? Pastor, I'm going to keep on doing this, and when I come to church on Sunday, you have to forgive me of my sins. I've never had anybody be so blatant as that. Now, he, his idea of confession and absolution was there's no contrition, at least it sure didn't seem to be any contrition in his heart whatsoever. He's sort of saying, you know, Christ died for me, so you better forgive me, Pastor. As if it's just an automatic operation, you know, without any contrition on his part whatsoever. And I don't know what the pastor said, you know, beyond that. But uh, talk about blatant. That would be, that's an example of unrepentance from the get-go. That does not have any contrition. Uh, instead of, you know, Trusting that Christ has forgiven you, it's sort of a, I get an automatic pass as long as I'm there on Sunday when you pronounce the absolution, Pastor, because I'm forgiven. And, well, that's not quite the way it works, right? So that, it just I happened to uh, come upon that. Um, it's unfortunate, but there are times, and it doesn't happen very often at all, where pastors have to exercise what's called the minor ban, and that is saying to someone, because of your repeated unrepentant life of sin, uh, you are no longer welcome at the Lord's table. 
And that's a harsh thing to say. We don't like to do that. As I say, it's very infrequent that that happens. But the point behind that is to show them the seriousness of what they are doing. And it is not a loving thing to say, okay, we'll just let that slide, when we know that in God's word, uh, that is clearly unacceptable. And we're not talking about just you know, somebody's opinion here. We can show you in the scriptures where this is not pleasing in the sight of God. Okay? All right. So, uh, enough about this. Let's, let's go back to the text. Uh, the baptism of repentance is not to be confused at all. There were Old Testament washing ceremonies when you became ceremonial, ceremonially unclean, and we see this even at the time of Jesus. The Jews had washing ceremonies that you had to go through to make yourself clean and holy once again. One big difference, uh, it, what you administered it yourself. You didn't have anybody else administer it. Okay? And John's baptism is administered by John. It is not repeated. John's baptism is not repeated. We have no uh, indication whatsoever that John was continually baptizing people over and over and over again, whereas these Jewish washings were. The Jews also had what they called a proselyte baptism. When you were a Gentile and you became a Jew by religion, uh, there was a baptism that was done, but that was done after you were already circumcised and brought into the Jewish faith. So again, John's baptism of repentance is not to be confused with either of those. It is not to be confused with baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is simply a baptism of repentance, a baptism of turning away from your former ways of life and turning to now the one who is coming. Okay? Let me stop there for a moment. Are there any questions or comments, I've covered uh, quite a bit in the area of baptism and repentance. Any either comments or questions before we move on? Yes. Right, yes, the comment was that the point of excommunication, or in this case really the minor ban, but even the same as with excommunication, that they will, in the case of the minor ban, miss the, uh, what they have been receiving, the, the body and blood of our Lord, and, and desire that. And as I say, it's also to point out the seriousness. So if, if they're taking it as something that's just not important whatsoever, a trivial matter, no, this really is important uh, as, as far as God's word is concerned. Yes? Yes, the comment was, is it not also an act of mercy? And we would say, yes, it is an act of mercy and love. And that the loving thing, as I say, is not to say to a Christian, uh, oh, well, that doesn't matter, don't worry about it, when it really does. When it really is something that could come as a an impediment between you and the Lord and you know these things never seem to get smaller they seem to get bigger over time and we see people actually drift eventually drifting away from the church itself but it is an act of mercy and love It is not a loving thing I'll put it this way to point out to say to someone who is in serious state of unrepentant sin that don't worry about it it's a trivial matter that's that's not not a loving thing to do it's a hard thing to do it's a hard thing to do this. Uh, <laughs> I don't look forward to those, those encounters. I don't know any pastor that does. Okay? No, that, fortunately, fortunately, we do not have, at least I speak for myself, a lot of those to deal with. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, the point was never forgiven and... In any case of especially eternal judgment, we leave that, of course, in the in hands of God. But I would be the first to point out to people that this is clearly not pleasing in the sight of God. And there's also the witness you're giving to others, both brothers and sisters in Christ and non-brothers and sisters in Christ with your, your unrepentant sin. A public, yeah, if it's a, especially if it's a public sort of a thing that everybody knows about and, and so on. But, mm -hmm. right, yeah, okay, so the, the question was, is there a difference between what John is preaching, a, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and the forgiveness of sins that's going to come through, through Christ, right? Is that what you were referring to? Salvation that's going to come through Christ. Yeah, we would say they are kind of, it's hard, you can't really separate one from the other. 
by John simply doing a baptism of repentance, and again, there's no indication of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit here. But remember, in the Old Testament, how were people saved? The the sacrifices that God commanded as a payment for sin, but also faith in the promise. Yeah, faith in the promise of the one who is going to come. So in very much the same way here, I think, John is telling people to repent and also telling them there's one coming. Put your faith in him. And, And we don't have all, we wish we had more of what he was actually preaching here. It, did, uh, it was certainly repent, but we think there was much more than that. In fact, we get a quote from him, you know, pointing to the Christ who's going to come, who's greater than I, the, the uh, strap of whose sandals I'm not able to untie. And so we would say that through the pointing to Christ, and then Christ finally does come and teaches, and we'll see it's going to be baptized, going to be tempted, and then it's going to be going about in his ministry. So he, he is the one who prepares, John is preparing them uh, for that coming. Okay? Yes? Uh, yeah, well, the question was, if we, if we very nonchalantly or cavalierly say there's forgiveness that we're doing harm to ourselves, I'm trying to, I can't think of a passage that, that would say that. I'd have to think about that a bit. Um, but we are called upon, again, to... to be stewards of the truth, and and not, yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, any others? All right, let's move on here, uh, starting at verse 4 now. And as, so uh, Luke is now reaching back and connecting John the Baptist with a prediction that was made by Isaiah 700 years earlier. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, Make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and notice all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So Luke here connects John the Baptist with Isaiah 40. That's a quote from Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. So again, this kind of strange guy who pops up in the wilderness, to some people anyway, who don't have the benefit of reading everything we've read up to this point, Luke is saying this guy is legit. He's the guy who was predicted 700 years ago in the prophet Isaiah. He's the one out there in the wilderness crying. This is the guy out there in the wilderness. He's the one now, prepare the way of the Lord with a baptism of repentance and preparation, right? Now... We think, it seems, John was aware of this. He was aware of his role and his ministry. Uh, He very clearly is going to say, no, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one. And uh, we think he was probably told this by his father, Zechariah. Again, if you keep your finger here and turn back to Luke 1, 76 through 77. And this is where uh, Zechariah, this is where in his song, remember, the attention turns away from God and turns toward John the Baptist, who at this point is still in womb. Okay? 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to, notice there, prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And again, we think that uh, Zechariah probably, uh, during John the Baptist, you know, raising of John the Baptist, uh, certainly communicated this to him as well. So he is the one out there in the wilderness preparing the way. Okay? Um, Now, let's just real quickly, for time purposes, What do we make of all this, you know, uh, mountains will be brought low, valleys will be raised up, crooked ways made straight? By calling for people to repent of their sins. This is not a geographic, uh, you know, actual uh, dirt and stone mountains we're talking about here, or actual physical roadways like we see construction on our highways here to straighten them out. This is a straightening out, a leveling out, of people's hearts, right? Calling them to repentance. 
removing from them and their hearts those things that would be impediments for the Messiah to come into their hearts. For the Jews, again, this would be all this belief that, well, we're children of Abraham, that's all we need, or, you know, I live a great life, you know, I'm keeping the law, I'm good with God. Uh, what would be some of the, the if, we, if, if we were talking today, if John the Baptist were here today to make the crooked things straight and the mountains low and the valleys high, what would be some impediments today that he would be straightening out, trying to straighten out, in people's hearts? What would he call them to repent from? Any thoughts? Addictions, okay. Abortion. Greed, money, okay, kind of almost the same lines. <laughs> okay, spending a lot of time on cell phones instead of, and, uh, yeah, okay. That, that can become an addiction almost, can it, for, for a lot of us. Anything else? I'm, I'm sorry. Unbelief, yeah, total rank unbelief. Yeah, absolutely. I quoted last week in the sermon, if you may recall, uh, that uh, just a couple years ago, uh, the Pew Research Institute did a study, and uh, the number of people now they found in America that say that they're agnostic or atheist or nothing whatsoever was 26%. That's how they describe themselves. And that's up 9% from just a decade earlier. So unbelief, very much so. Living in sin. Are you talking about cohabitation before? Yeah. You know what the stats are nationally uh, for that? 65% are cohabitating before marriage today. So that's one of the things we, we uh, do deal with. Unfortunately, we have to. Okay? So this is all he's doing. He's not obviously talking here about geographic, you know, stone and dirt and roads and, and so on. He's talking about people's hearts. And he is the one who Isaiah 700 years earlier pointed to and said he's going to come to prepare the way for Christ to come. In other words, get all this other stuff out of your hearts and heads Turn away from it. Something much better is coming to you. God's grace is going to be is on the way. Exactly right. Exactly right. All right, let's go on. Uh, John, John was not a uh, real tactful guy. So starting at verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. So how'd you like it if uh, I greeted everybody on Sunday morning in the narthex? You brood of vipers as they came into church. That, that probably would not be too... Uh, <laughs> What's wrong with this guy? Yeah. <laughs> Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. First of all, notice that crowds are coming out to him. This is not just, you know, I'll sit out here in the wilderness and, you know, maybe once in a while somebody will come out here and see me. Crowds are coming to him. And these are not, as I said, we think, not just Jews. So John is getting quite a reputation. Uh, if nothing else, people are going out there out of curiosity see this, this guy out there in the wilderness. You know, he's eating grasshoppers and dressed, uh, or eating locusts and uh, dressed up in camel's hair and so on. All right, so he, he uh, endears himself to the people by calling them a brood of vipers. Um, so we won't look at it, but uh, that term was used in Scripture in Isaiah 59, for example, to uh, uh, identify people who, uh, let's say, were, were deceptive and dishonest. But I think there's an even greater insult here. This, this literally uh, is the offspring of poisonous snakes. Now, anybody think of what he might also be implying here, that they are the offspring of Satan? Yeah, the spawn of Satan. The original venomous snake, right? In the, in the garden, venomous in terms of his, his lie, which caused the downfall. So... Is he also here calling, <laughs> connecting them with Satan? It is quite possible. And again, uh, he, has, he holds nothing back. You know, he doesn't, it's not, the, let's sit down and talk about this for a while. You know? No, it's 
confrontational from the get-go. Um, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The wrath to come is first going to come to Jerusalem and God's people in 70 AD when Jerusalem is going to be completely destroyed by the Romans. But then there is, of course, an ultimate uh, day of wrath to come that still is yet to come. And I guess you could say, uh, you know, isn't the crucifixion also a day of wrath? It's, it's Christ taking the wrath of God uh, for all sin and all evil, but I think it's probably more pointing to the ultimate day of wrath that is going to come. So, you know, who warned you about this? Who told you about this? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that mean? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Your life, it's kind of what we were talking about before a little bit, your life ought to show evidence of repentance. In other words, your life ought to be one that demonstrates that you have repented of your sin and, uh, again, are a child of God. Um, I'm really uh, indebted to uh, Reverend Dr. Arthur Just, who is a professor at our uh, Fort Wayne Seminary. Uh, he wrote the commentaries on the Gospel of Luke, and uh, I found something there that I was never aware of uh, before reading it on this, and that is when back in the early church, when catechumens, those who were being taught the Christian faith, in preparation for baptism, they were questioned by the bishop when they were going to be confirmed and before baptism, not only about doctrine, like we do today. You know, we have that questioning night when all the kids are up there, you know, shaking in their boots and, and we ask them questions about the doctrine. But they were also asked about their life and their lifestyle and how they were living their life. In other words, was their life demonstrating the fruit of repentance? Have there been changes in your lifestyle uh, as a result? And this questioning usually took place on Ash Wednesday back in the early church and then you entered into the real intensive instruction in preparation for your baptism as an adult on uh, Easter Eve or at the Easter Vigil on Saturday night between Good Friday and Easter. That was the custom in the early church for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, now, here, I want to read a quote from an early church father here. See if you think we could get away with this today. This is Hippolytus and uh, his apostolic tradition. This is about 215 A.D., okay? So about 215 A.D. He's, he's describing what happens. And when those, who were when those who were to receive baptism are chosen, let their life be examined. Have they lived good lives when they were catechumens or students? Have they honored the widows? Have they visited the sick? Have they done every kind of good work? And when those who are brought, have brought them bear witness to each he has, let them hear the gospel. A hearer of the gospel was a technical term for a catechumen or a student who after three years of instruction was enrolled in the final stage of catechesis before baptism. Who was the one who brought the catechumen for questioning? Sponsor. Sponsor. They had a three-year period of instruction, apparently, at, at, in 215 AD. And then you came and were questioned. And it was not only doctrine, but as I said there, notice those questions about your life. And not only you saying it, you had to say it out of your mouth, but your sponsor, the one who brought you, had to say it, had to testify to it as well. Then... You enter this group who from Ash Wednesday until Easter Eve are fully instructed and baptized. Now I gotta say, well, first of all, let me ask you, what are your you have any reactions to this? I know what I think, but like work? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that it certainly does, doesn't it? Three years? We have cheap grace now. <laughs> I'll just say, I don't know how many of you are aware of what we do here, but we have uh, six weeks, uh, Tuesday nights for two hours, 
And uh, to be, you know, to be transparent, that last hour in the last session is also sort of an orientation to St. Paul's. Uh, I have heard of uh, another Lutheran church that um, has two hours. That's it, two hours. And most of that, from a person I was talking to that went through it, is orientation to that particular congregation, that particular church. Um, we, with junior confirmants here, we start in the fifth and sixth grade with just Bible stories, and then seventh and eighth is taught by your pastors on actual doctrine. But you know, we have never, to my knowledge, asked about anybody's life, their life changed, you know? And I got to thinking, should we be offering more servant events for our youth to put their faith into action and have this, have this what they're learning about lived out even while they are still catechumens. And, I, you know, it's something to think about. It's not, maybe we have focused a lot on the head knowledge, and I'm not saying that's not important. I'm saying that, that most definitely is important. But there's also a, sort of a life side to all of this as well, right? A living out of this faith. And now we're getting near the end of time. I also wonder, do we preach in our sermons, do we preach enough about that changed life and what that looks like, right? And so as Lutherans, I'm, I'm just saying that uh, there are other churches that unfortunately preach that to the detriment of the gospel, you know, the gospel not being heard much. But maybe, you know, again, it's, a, it's not an either or, it's a both and. I guess that's the bottom line in this, right? It's not an either or, okay? All right, any comments or questions? All right, I think we're at a good place to stop. It is uh, 1028. And let's close then with the benediction. We'll pick up again here next week. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.